I'm continuing now. This is kind of funny. Well, maybe not funny, but kind of funny to me because uh, it was an unanticipated, I suppose, series. <laughs> I, I wasn't uh, expecting to speak on this more than once, but I actually, as, uh, as you know, I really like to pray about what to share, and I really felt like the Lord wanted me to continue on this. And the cool thing is, Tricia, as you, if, if you were here, shared on uh, a facet of this as well last week, and so that's why I'm calling it an unanticipated series because it seems to be that way. But today, I, for those those of you who weren't here, because there's quite a few, a couple of weeks ago I spoke on this, I want to just give a little bit of a context and a refresher of what I spoke on, and then go, go on something different, okay? So, so there's just going to be a little bit of review, and then I want to hit on something different. Uh, so what, what I was talking about a couple of weeks ago was humility, and the importance of humility, actually how critical, absolutely critical it is. And I started off with this quote, and I wanted to just start off with this quote again, because this is really the quote that inspired me to go on this journey of humility, this quote and some other things, as I talked about a couple weeks ago. But I want you to think about this. If, if you weren't here, this is a quote by Jason Upton, who's a phenomenal musician, if you don't know who it is. Um, he said this, right now in this day and age, the best discernment that you can ever use is to hang out with those who are followers of Jesus that are humble and broken. Because Jesus dealt with people not in terms of right and wrong, but in terms of humble or proud. As I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, the first time I heard this, I was like, it was one of those statements that really hit me because I was like, wow, that sounds true, but is it really true? You know, I had to actually think about that. And the more I thought about it, the more I realized how true it is. And the reason it seems so awkward is because I think that uh, most of us like to think in terms of right and wrong. And I think that's been sort of what we've emphasized um, in Christianity, particularly for the last 500 years or so from the Reformation. It's all a bit about right and wrong. And so we like to think of that way. And if you're not on page with me, you're wrong right? And you're, you're not part of our denomination or whatever because you don't believe the same things I do. So we, we tend to think in terms of right and wrong. Now, there's balance to this because uh, it's important to have right beliefs. But I think what's more important is that we're humble. And I, I talked all about that uh, last time. Humility is absolutely critical. And the irony is that the only people who are actually going to be right are the humble. And that's really what I'm going to talk about today. If we seek to be right, it's actually going to uh, typically lead to self-righteousness. But if we seek to be humble, then it's going to lead us into truth. And then we're actually going to be the, the, uh, the humble are the ones who are going to have the truth. And so um, the, the, the scripture that really, in, I've been emphasizing actually when I talked about the religious spirit too, this is a, this is a really important scripture. It's, it's quoted in James 4, 6 and 1 Peter 5, 5, which is, and it's, they're actually quoting Proverbs 3, verse 34. It's a simple verse, but a critical. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Whoa. So what this suggests is that, like, I've said this before, but we would all rather have every demon in hell resisting us than having God resist us, wouldn't we, right? We do not want God resisting us. So this is critical that we don't give in to pride. 
And, and I think that's, that's a huge strategy of the enemy to get us proud and so that God ends up resisting us. Because if, like I said, if he get, can get us proud even about good things like praying, how much we pray, how much we read the Bible, how much we fast, then he knows it'll be counterproductive because God will actually resist those very things that we're proud of, right? So his strategy is to get us prideful. And I talked about that, all about that when I talked about the religious spirit. So humility is absolutely critical for life in the kingdom. The question then is, what is humility and what does it look like? Is the question I had. Because I I realized, this is about five or six years ago, uh, God was, I guess, emphasizing that in my life. What is humility? What is humility? Because I don't see a conceptual definition of what it actually is in the Bible. I see how imperative it is that we're humble. But I don't see an easy, this is what humility is. And so... I, uh, a couple weeks ago, I asked that question, and I, I tried to answer it, start answering it, though I didn't even start scratching the surface. The, the first thing I talked about is, what does humility look like? Jesus. <laughs> he was humility personified, really. And what does pride look like? The devil. And so I made these slides here to just give a brief overview of what I talked about in a succinct manner, but I, I highlighted a few things just to uh, uh, point out the difference between Jesus and the devil. <laughs> so, humility. This is from the ultimate scripture, I think, on humility, talking about Jesus, Philippians 2, and I just have verse 5 to 8 right now. This is talking about Jesus. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being the very nature of God, did not... Consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. I have humbled himself underlined because I want you to notice that we have to humble ourselves. It's not something God does for us. Over and over and over and over again, if you look, anytime it talks about humility, it's an imperative that's it's something we have to do ourselves. So it doesn't even make sense to pray, God, humble me. I don't see that in the Bible. I see you humble yourself and God will exalt you. That's God's part. Now look at the, look at the devil. This is a, a, I, I quoted the full scriptures last time, but this is a portion from Isaiah 14, 13 to 15. This is talking about the fall of Satan in the Old Testament. You said in your heart, and I have heart underlined because that's a major uh, thing I'm going to talk about today. I will, now look at the difference. I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly, on the utmost heights of Mount Zaphon. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. But you're brought down to the realm of the dead, to the depths of the pit. Look at the difference of what I have highlighted. Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be used. Satan, I will make myself like the most high God. Personification of pride right there. And you can see, actually, uh, next slide, the consequences of humility and pride. This is the second part of Philippians. Therefore, because Jesus, remember, humbled himself to the... Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that's above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
So because Jesus humbled himself to such a degree, God said, I'm going to exalt you to the highest name above every single name. But look what happened to Satan because of pride. This is from Isaiah 14, 11 to 2. All your pomp has been brought down to the grave, along with the noise of your harps. Maggots are spread out beneath you and worms cover you. How you have fallen from heaven, morning star, son of the dawn. You've been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. So these are the consequences summarized in Luke 18 and verse 14. I have it down there, but... This is this particular statement Jesus says multiple times in the in the gospels. For all of those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all those who humble themselves will be exalted. And you can see this with Satan and Jesus right here, right? I will cast you down because pride came in to the lowest parts, <laughs> to the depths of hell, because of your pride, and you said, I'm going to become like God. Whereas Jesus, I'm going to exalt you to the highest place possible because you so humbled yourself. So we can learn from those examples, can't we? And how critical it is that we don't give in to pride, because if we do, the consequence is dire. But if we give in to humble ourselves, then God will exalt us. And I want to say this too, that it's funny, you know, it's, it's easy to say, okay, uh, we, we really admire humility, and we're fine with people humbling themselves in the church, but uh, we have a problem when God exalts people, don't we? So that's something we have to watch out for, too. We, we can't just agree with humble yourself and not if God, okay, because you humbled yourself and exalt you, oh, and then persecute the person because, you know, God exalted them. That's a consequence of being humble. So, right, I'm just saying we got to watch out, too, that we don't give in to jealousy uh, over people that God exalts because of this humility. So... Next, um, and this is really a critical uh, point I want to make today, is that humility and pride are matters of the heart. Okay? So look at Jesus. And I mentioned this last time. This is the only scripture I can think of, though I could be wrong, because I I haven't uh, really paid attention uh, to make this statement too confidently, but I am pretty confident this is the only time Jesus describes himself with trait characteristics in the whole Bible. And again, you can show me if I'm wrong, because I could be. But, but I'm just saying, if you think about it, you don't hear Jesus describing himself very often. Like, I'm joyful, I'm this, I'm that, I'm, I'm shy, I'm extroverted, I'm introverted. The only time he says something about himself is here. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. He's our example. And and notice I have underlined there, humble in heart. It's a heart issue. It's all about the heart. And he says, and you'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy, my burden's light. Now look at the devil. This is from Ezekiel now. This is another famous Old Testament passage on Satan. So I drove you in disgrace from the mountain of God, and I expelled you, guardian cherub, from among the fiery stones. Your heart became proud. Remember, the heart, on account of your beauty, and you corrupted, uh, you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. So I threw you to the earth. I made a spectacle of you before kings. Matters of the heart. So then I talked about Luke 10, 17, 24. And this, again, I'm, I'm refreshing your memory because this is actually a critical scripture that I want to spring off of again today. Now, this is when Jesus sent out the 72 and he told them, preach the gospel, heal the sick, right? Raise the dead, 
cast out demons, and they did, and then they came back super excited in verse 17. And, th- and notice as Jesus said, he replied, I saw Satan fall light- like lightning from heaven. This, the verses I just quoted you, Jesus was alluding to. Okay, and he says, I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. At that time, Jesus, full of joy, through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you've hidden these things from the wise and learned, and you revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. And I have there, full of joy, down there, the actual Greek word that's used. And I pointed this out last time. For those of you who weren't here, I want to say it again. This isn't some kind of subtle smile that Jesus, oh, praise you, Father. This was extravagant joy. Look at what the Greek word means. Properly getting so glad, one jumps in celebration to exult because so experientially joyful. Jesus was jumping up and down, ecstatic because of this. And the odd thing is, I think, maybe it's just me, look at what's making him so happy. That God hides things from the wise and learned, and he reveals them to little children. In the context, he's talking about his disciples as little children. My question was, why, and I have this, I'm shouting this today, I whispered it last time, why? Did it make Jesus so happy that God hides things from the wise and learned and reveals them to little children? Is it, like, isn't it interesting to think about that? The only time I can think of in Scripture where Jesus is jumping up and down so ecstatic and joy in the Holy Ghost, right? That was Toronto before Toronto happened. Just Jesus getting blasted in the Holy Spirit laughing and yay, Jesus. Why did that make him so happy is the question. So... Now, this, I'm going to just end my little review here and then go from somewhere else. So that's the question I want to try and answer today. But before I do, this is something to consider. Jesus is serious about becoming like children. Notice how critical becoming like children is to life in the kingdom. And these are just four verses. There's more than this, but I just have four here just to illustrate different points. Luke 8, 16, the kingdom of God belongs to children. Luke 18, 16, if you don't receive the kingdom like little children, you'll never enter it. Never is what I have emphasized there, because that's kind of scary. That's how important this is. It's not something we can brush off lightly like, okay, that's nice, become like children. Jesus, you'll never enter the kingdom unless you become like children. This is the same language he used when he said it's important to become born again. In John chapter 3, unless you become born again, you'll never enter the kingdom. And us Protestants shout that for some reason, but we don't hear very many people saying, unless you become like children, you'll never enter the kingdom. And I I don't know why that's the case, because there's actually more scriptures on on that than born again, but that's fine. Um, Just something to think about. Unless you change and become like little children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. So the difference there is receiving versus changing and becoming. Another version says being converted. And the last but not least, Matthew 18, 4, therefore, whoever takes the humble position of this child, we're talking about humility, is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So not only is it critical to enter the kingdom by becoming like children, it's critical because those who are like children are going to be considered the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So 
This is where I'm going to move on to today. Talked about earlier, and I said this is going to be important, so I was trying to set up uh, where I'm going with this. First of all, that humility and pride are matters of the heart. And secondly, that pride, if we seek after being right, we could be led astray. But if we seek to be humble, we'll be, we'll, the, it's the humble that are actually going to uh, know, receive, and understand the truth of the kingdom of heaven. In order to get revelation from God, critical to become humble. So if we seek the scriptures in order to know more knowledge to feed our pride, that's actually going to lead us astray. Then we know people probably who, who approach it that way. In fact, Jesus says in, in John 5, verses 39 and 49, that you diligently seek the scriptures because you think in them you're going to have eternal life, but you don't know. They're pointing to me, and you're totally missing it, right? You're rejecting me, <laughs> but you're seeking the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. So we got to be careful that we're, uh, what's our motive when we're seeking? Like I said earlier, if, if the devil can make us prideful about our knowledge or about seeking knowledge for knowledge sake to be right, then we're actually going to get off like the Pharisees did. But if we're seeking to know Jesus, the very person the scriptures are pointing to, then we're going to be led to truth and we'll stay on the path of life. So humility is the key to understanding truth is the point. Okay. Now, just to have the second point of that quote I gave earlier, Jesus, Jesus dealt with people not in terms of right and wrong, but in terms of humble or proud. And I already said this, but seeking to be right only leads to self-righteousness. Seeking to be humble results in knowledge of the truth. Jesus reveals truth to the humble of heart, and therefore the only way to be right is through humility. And that's the verse I just quoted you, right? Where Jesus got ecstatic. Thank you, Lord, that you hid these things from the learned and the prideful and the right the wise but you you reveal them to little children and thank god trisha preached all about little children last week and so that to really compliment this and 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 that's awesome so i'm going to go somewhere a little bit different today and and it's a good thing we made the point that jesus is using children of an Ill, as an illustration of humility and 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 trisha did a really good job of of, of um, uh, explaining that in more detail Today, what I want to talk about is, is understanding truth. Understanding, using the example of the parables. Unless you approach Scripture with a humble heart, unless you approach God with a humble heart, you're never going to understand the, the parables, the Scriptures, because it was Jesus' intent to hide truth within parables so that only the wise will be able to understand, or only the humble will be able to understand them, and the prideful won't. And I'm going to show you that that's the, actually the case using uh, the parables. So, he hid truth in them so that people with prideful hard hearts couldn't receive the truth. He hid truth in mysteries so that only the humble of heart were able to hear and understand the truth. And this is what Jesus was actually teaching in the parable of the sower. The, the famous parable of the sower. And I have the scriptural references, Matthew because it's in every single synoptic gospel because it's so critical. In fact, Jesus, I would argue it's the king pin, linchpin parable of parables. And I'll, I'll tell you why I say that in a minute. But Matthew 13, 1 through 23, 
Oh, Mark 4, 1 through 20, and Luke 8, 1 through 15 are the, uh, in the different places in the Gospels where Jesus gives this parable. The one I want to emphasize is the one from Matthew 13, and the reason is because this one has the most detail and makes, thank you, Kim, and makes the best case. God bless Kim, who's doing the projection right now, and yeah, <laughs> I, I, I always pray for grace because, uh, I, I, you know me, I, I use all these scriptures and go in here and there. But So Matthew 13, and, and we know this, probably most of us know this particular parable so well. I want you to try and pretend you've never heard it before and to hear it with fresh ears. Because, you know, maybe the way I'm explaining it today you've thought about before, but if you haven't, I want to actually explain this in a way that's illustrating the principle of what I talked about previously in regards to humility and pride in terms of understanding truth. So I'm just going to read from Matthew 13. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by a lake. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat in it. Well, all the people stood on the shore. Then he told them many things in parables, saying, A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil, where produced a crop 160 or 30 times what was sown. Whoever has hears, let them hear. And whenever you see that, Jesus says that every once in a while. And when he's saying that, it's hint, hint, there's more to this than what's on the surface. Those who have ears, and he's saying this is important to let them hear because there's truth in here that you need to seek out. And you'll notice that in Revelation 2. Those who have ears hear what the Spirit's saying to the churches, right? You hear this over and over again. So there's revelation hidden within this. And that's what I was saying earlier. If you notice the scripture I used from Luke 10, that God hides things from the proud, but he reveals them to the little children. We're talking about the revelation, right? The word reveal, revelation. So, verse 10, the disciples came to him and asked... Why do you speak to the people in parables? And I stop there to, this is such a critical portion of scripture. Because Jesus uses, the, the disciples are like, hey, Jesus, you're always talking in these weird, obscure parables. Why are you doing that? This makes no sense to us. And then Jesus actually answers them. And that's what, that's what I'm going to talk about today. Jesus, why do you speak in parables? Here's why. Verse Oh, uh, that's there. Verse 11. He replied, because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven have been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. And I have here, this is my bracket here. Remember, 30, 60, 100 fold. That's what he's talking about there. Whoever has will have an abundance and they're going to multiply the secret, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. And we're going to learn later, just so you know, we're talking about the heart, okay? Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. Notice the first three types of seed and soil were about this. The seed was sown and it got snatched away. 
It got taken from them, right? So Jesus is illustrating that in that parable. This is what's happening. Some people can receive it and it'll be multiplied. Some people who don't receive it because of the condition of their heart, it gets lost. And he gave three different ways it gets lost in the parable we just read. So, this is why I speak to them in parables. I have certain things highlighted here to show you something. This is not... This is not separate from what he just said in the parable. In fact, this is why he, this is what he's saying in the parable. He's using these different descriptions to help them understand what that parable is about. And the interesting thing is he's using that parable as an illustration of why he uses parables. That might sound weird, but I'm going to explain that here. But just remember, because sometimes Jesus says something and we think it's removed from what he just said, but he's actually still talking about their, que- their question in the, in the parable he just gave them. Okay, so this is why I speak to them in parables. Those seeing, this is what I'm talking about with Teresa. This is good that she talked about this. Seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. Remember, those who have ears to hear, let them hear. Jesus always uses this language for understanding revelation. And and in fact, the physical miracles of blind seeing, ears being open, are actual physical manifestations of what he was doing in the spirit. You can see that in John 9, in fact, when he healed the blind man, and he told the, the Pharisees, the Pharisees, oh, wait, are you calling us blind? And he's like, no, because you call yourself blind, you're actually condemning yourself. Maybe I should read that later. You're condemning yourself because you're saying with, you're without sin. And because of that, you're actually condemning yourself. He was using that as an illustration to show what he meant by eyes opening. He's talking. Is this making sense? Maybe I'll just move on. Forget that, okay? <laughs> just forget what I said. Let's focus on this. Those seeing they do not see, though hearing they do not hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You'll be ever hearing but never understanding. You'll be ever seeing but never perceiving. For people's, this people's hearts have become calloused. Remember the first three types of seed and soil. Okay? He's talking about what's happening here. The hearts are calloused. The seed never took root and never grew. It got taken away from them. Because of the condition of the heart. Because, remember, we talked about pride and humility is an issue of the heart. Because pride has made people's hearts calloused, they cannot receive the revelation in these parables. They hardly hear with their ears and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, and I have in brackets, if their hearts were humble and soft... They might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts. Is that making sense? And turn and I would heal them. So again, Jesus is still talking about the parable. But he's using these. This is a fulfillment of this Old Testament prophecy. This whole section is what the parable of the sower is about. Okay? Is that that making sense? And you can see how he's using that to help them understand what that parable meant and why he uses parables. Okay, I'm going to elaborate on this more if you're not understanding. Hopefully you will. Because I understand this can be... Okay. Now, I'm focusing on Matthew, but what I love about the Synoptic Gospels is some emphasize some things and some others. And so, 
In Mark's version, but not in Matthew's, he's, Jesus says this in Mark 4.13, right, at, right before this part where he gives them the revelation, he says, then Jesus said to them, don't you understand this parable about the sower? How then will you understand any parable? Two things he's saying here. First of all, this parable is absolutely critical for you to understand every single parable. But what he's asking here, if you don't understand this parable, how are you going to understand those parables? Because it's only the humble that are able to understand the parable. So if you can't understand that parable, how are you going to understand any parable? That parable is illustrating why he speaks in parables and what it takes to understand the parables. You following? Okay, good. So listen then to what the parable of the sower means. Anyone who hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, The evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in the heart. Remember, we're talking about the heart. This is the seed sown along the path. The seed fallen on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. The seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. But, and this is the good heart, the seed falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. This is the one who produces a crop yielding 160 or 30 times what's sown. This is the last sentence in Luke's version, but the seed of good soil stands for those with a good and noble heart. It's all about the heart. Who hear the word, retain it by persevering, produce a crop. What this is saying is unless your heart is humble and soft, you're never going to understand truth of the kingdom. That is a critical, 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 the critical factor. It's all about the heart. If your heart is hard for these various reasons that he says, okay, fear, persecute, whatever, you're not going to receive it and it's not going to multiply. But if you're a humble, if you have a humble heart, you're going to receive it. The truth is the kingdom's going to multiply. The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom's going to multiply. Okay. Now, in both Mark and Luke's version of this, he keeps on going. In Matthew, he's, they don't have this, but in both these versions, because he's still talking about this parable. And that's why this is so important. He's still talking. He's still giving them, t- tell, giving them understanding of this parable about the sower. So right after that, in both Mark and Luke, he said to them, do you bring a lamp to put it under a bowl or a bed? Instead, don't you put it on its stand? For whatever is hidden is meant to be disclosed. He's talking about the parable. And whatever's concealed is meant to be brought into the open. If anyone has ears, let them hear. Does that make sense? He's actually saying all of the truth that's hidden in these parables are meant to be disclosed. And that's what he's doing with them. In fact, he's using that as an illustration of what that's like because he discloses the truth that's within the parable, doesn't he? He's using this very incident As an illustration, if you're humble and if you have ears to hear, you're going to get the revelation knowledge of what these parables mean. Because right before it in Matthew's version, he says, blessed are you because you've been given these things. You have, your ears are hearing these things. Your eyes are seeing these things that prophets have longed to hear and see. But you're getting it because you're little children. 
and I'm revealing this truth to you. That's what he's saying in verse 21 through 23. The truth is hidden in parables. It's meant to be disclosed. It's meant, the truth is meant to come out. But only the humble of heart are going to have it come out for them and understand it. Jesus used this opportunity, I already said, to illustrate this principle by disclosing the truth that was concealed to the little children. So the humble of heart received the revelation and it was multiplied. Okay, right? It was multiplied. 30, 60, 100 fold. Think about how much it multiplied. We're talking about Matthew. He's one of those disciples that Jesus was saying this to. How much did that, <laughs> that parable multiply through his gospel? Right? So, okay, are you guys tracking with me? Good, 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 good. Thanks. So, why then? Why does Jesus hide these things from the proud? Right? That's a good question. Why does he do this? And I'm going to try and give you an answer here because I think this is why. And I'm going to use scripture to show you. Okay? So Jesus hid the truth so that people with prideful hearts couldn't receive the truth. Why? Because they would reject the truth and be held even more accountable for it and receive a more severe judgment for rejecting the truth. Okay? Now, this is a paraphrased quote, because I couldn't remember the exact quote, but it's something like this that I've heard Rick Joyner say before, and I love it, because it's true, and I'm going to show you this illustration in, in the scriptures I'm about to show you. God judges people, nations, fill in the blank, not according to the amount of evil they embrace, but according to the amount of light they reject. I will. God judges people and nations and whoever else. We'll just say people, not according to the amount of evil embraced, but according to the amount of light they rejected. And I'm going to show you scriptures to, to, to show you that that's actually true. This might sound counterintuitive, but it's God's mercy to use parables so that the prideful would not receive as severe of a judgment for rejecting the truth contained in them. Only the humble, hungry heart who seek the truth are going to get them because he knows if, they reject, if people reject the truth they've received, they're going to get a more severe judgment. And I'll show you that. Luke 12, 47 to 48. And I'm just giving you the last part of this because this is Jesus talking here. He says, the servant who knows the master's will, who knows the truth, and does not get ready or does not do what the master wants will be beaten with many blows. But the one who does not know and does the things deserving punishment will be beaten with few blows. From everyone who's been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who's been, get, been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. Does that make sense? In other words, if you've received truth and you don't do it or you reject it, you're getting beaten with many blows. You're going to get a more severe judgment than the people who never even understood or heard the truth. Okay? So, those who know God's will are accountable and will receive a harsher judgment for rejecting it than those who do not. In other words, it's better not to know it than to know the truth and reject it. Does that make sense? It's better not to, and Jesus even says this to Judas, for instance. It, was, it would be better for you if not to have been born because you rejected me. 
Judas was with him for three and a half years. Jesus on earth saw all the miracles, was with him day and night, and betrayed him. Imagine the severity of punishment because of the amount of light he rejected. And Jesus said, it would be better if you weren't even born, Judas, because, because of the, you're going to get beaten with many blows compared to the people who never even met Jesus. Does that make sense? So here's another illustration of that principle. Remember, God doesn't judge people according to the evil they embraced, but the amount of light they rejected. Here you go. Matthew 11, 20 verse to verse, for, for, uh, so, sorry, verse 20 to 24. Then Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of the miracles had been performed because they didn't repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethesda. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would, not, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it'll be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on that day of judgment than for you. Because they saw so much. They saw the miracles and they didn't repent. And Jesus said, you are being held more accountable now because you rejected the kingdom of heaven so tangibly manifest. If Tyre and Sidon had saw that, they would have been repenting. So you're held more, you're more accountable. Now look at this. If that weren't enough, and you, Capernaum, you will, be li- will you be lifted up to the heavens? No, you'll go down to Hades. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. For so- do, do you guys all know what so- Sodom and Gomorrah? <laughs> That's like <laughs> the prototype, the poster child of an evil city. And Jesus is saying, Capernaum, because I spent so much time in you and performed miracles and you didn't repent, it's going to be more bearable for Sodom. Remember, God's going to judge according to not the amount of evil embraced, because Sodom embraced a lot of evil, but according to the amount of light they rejected. Capernaum. Now get this. I want you to notice something. Notice we're in a Matthew 11, 20, verse 30. Look at the very next verse. I think I have the verses. Oh, wait, that was verse 24. Oh, Kim went ahead. Can you go back one, Kim? No, no, that's per- verse 24. Look at the very next verse. Okay, verse 25. Now you can go. Did you go? Verse 25. Bam. This is in the context of what I just said. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father in heaven and earth, because you've hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. Is this making sense? I'll say that. So all these things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son and those whom the Son chooses to reveal. We're talking about Revelation. Come to me. And then you know this verse. We talked about it earlier. He's talking about humility. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart. Next slide. This is Luke's version of what I just said. Woe to you, see verse 13 there. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethesda. If the miracles that were performed in you, blah, blah, blah. Sorry, I shouldn't say blah, blah, blah. But you see what I'm saying? Fill in the blank. 
be more bearable for them on judgment than for you. Verse 16 isn't in Matthew, but whoever listens to you listens to me. Whoever rejects you rejects me, but whoever rejects me rejects the one who sent me. Notice what verse this is, Luke 16. What's the next verse? This verse that I talked to you earlier. The same one about God hiding things from the wise and learned, revealing them to little children. Why does this make Jesus so happy was the question. This is the answer. Next slide. Why did Jesus rejoice that things were hidden from the wise and learned? It's in the context of the judgment they had received because they would be spared judgment by, uh, for rejecting the truth. Je- Does that make sense? Jesus is getting happy that God's hiding these things because if he revealed it to them, they would get a more severe judgment. That's mercy. Exactly. Jesus is happy that God would hide these things so they wouldn't get such a severe judgment for rejecting them. Why did he rejoice that they were revealed to little children, the humble? Because the humble of heart will receive the message of the kingdom and multiply it 30, 60, 100 fold. That's what Jesus was so happy about. Both of those things. I'm so happy you revealed this to children because they're going to multiply the kingdom. Because they have the humility of heart to understand it and it's going to produce multiplication. I'm also super happy that you're hiding this stuff in parables from the wise and learned because if you didn't, they would get severe judgment and I do not want that to happen. Does that make sense? Now, of course, there probably is more to it than that, why that made Jesus happy, but I'm, I believe that's a big part of why Jesus was so happy about God hiding things and revealing things to children and why he hides truth in parables. You understand then that it's the humble of heart that's a prerequisite to understanding truth of the kingdom, understanding parables and the teachings of Jesus. So, how do we humble ourselves, right? That's a million-dollar question. If it's so critical to be humble, then what is humility, and how do we actually do it? And this is where I, last time I didn't have time to, to finish, but lessons from James. Because what I want to show you um, is if you read those, the main scripture I've used that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. If you look at the surrounding context, it tells you a lot, right? Because what was James even talking about when he quoted that? It tells you a lot about how, how we humble ourselves. So, James chapter 4, verses 3 to 8, and verse 10. I'm going to start in verse 5. So he's talking about people sinning and asking because their motives are wrong, they're not getting it, and all that sort of thing. And he says, do you think that the scripture says in vain that the spirit who dwells in you yearns jealously? He yearns jealously for us. But he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Now he talks about what that looks like. Therefore... Submit to God. That's part of humility. Submitting to God. Submitting to God's words, submitting to his ways, submitting to his voice is key in the New Testament. 
It's critical that we not only hear his voice, but that we submit to it and do it. So that's part of humility. Submitting to God's word is actually part of what humility is. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. That's humility. Notice this. God resists the proud. We have to resist the devil because he's the poster child of pride. And remember what I said earlier. His key strategy, because he knows this verse and principle so much more than we do in the church, generally speaking. He knows if he can get us prideful that God's going to resist us. So his key strategy is to get the church proud so that God won't show up. And in fact, not only will he won't show up, he'll resist us. The worst thing imaginable. So we have to resist him who's trying to make us prideful. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Intimacy with God is humility. We need to, uh, to develop relationship with God and draw near, and he promises that he'll draw near to us. Now, dot, 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 verse 10, notice, still he's talking about humility. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he'll lift you up. The same language. If you humble yourself, God will exalt you. Okay, so those are three keys. Next one is lessons from Peter, because that's the... Um, Second uh, portion of scripture where, where it's, this verse is quoted. Now, this is in the context of community, and this is why I want to emphasize, the, emphasize this and end on community. Because if you look at the New Testament, most of the time in the epistles where it talks about humility, it's in the context of community. It's not, it's, it's not necessarily an individual thing, though it's clear with Jesus it is. But in the, in the New Testament, most of the time, it's, it's in the context, you, and I'm going to point that out right now, of, of us, how we treat each other in this community. So, the elders who are among you, I exhort you, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also partaker of the glory that will be revealed, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor is being lords over those entrusted to you, not lording it over people, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd comes, appears, you'll receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. Isn't that something else? That's what being clothed with, submitting to one another. All of us, not just, so he talks about younger people submitting to elders, yes, but he's saying all of you be submissive to one another. Four, God resists the proud, gives grace to the humble. Therefore, remember, humble yourselves. It's something we do. Under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Again, the whole formula of humble yourself, God exalts you. Look at what humility is. Casting all of your care upon him for he cares for you. That's what humbling yourself under the mighty hand of God looks like. Isn't that, isn't that interesting? Casting our cares upon him. I should look this up, but I heard somebody say once that that word casting, is a, it's not found much in the New Testament, but the other place it's found is when they cast um, Jesus' bag, I think it was in Luke, on the donkey, like actually throwing it, casting it. So God said, you got to cast your cares upon him. If you think about this, and there's no condemnation because... Everyone deals with anxiety. If you think about what anxiety is, it really has pride at the core because you are not trusting God and you think you have to take things into your own hand. Is that not prideful, right? 
Does that make sense? And so what does humbling yourself under God's hand look like? Casting your cares upon him. Now look at this. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking you may devour, trying to get us prideful. Resist him. Same thing that James says. Resist the devil as part of what humility is. Actively resisting the devil who's trying to make you prideful. Steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. Okay. I'm going to move on. Where do we humble ourselves? Community. That's what I already said. And, and I'm one, I'm, I'm, probably there's a reason why we're spending these, all these messages on this. Because it's a community that's critical that we're humble if we want God to show up. There's no other way. There's absolutely no other way that God's going to show up because he resists the proud. And unless we know what it looks like to be humble and to walk it out as a community, are we going to see God move? I believe yes, but there's a part we play. We've got to humble ourselves. And he gives his grace to the humble. And that's why, I've said this before, I think it's no coincidence that God used John and Carol or not because they are so humble. We just were there celebrating their 75th birthday. They are the kindest, humble people, and, I'm a, and it's no wonder God used them because he gives grace to the humble. And he needed humble vessels in order to carry that grace. Okay, look at Isaiah 66 quickly, verses 1 to 2. Heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. Where is the house you'll build for me? Where will my resting place be? And that's what we want to be, right? Catch the fire, Ottawa. We want to be your resting place, Lord. Right? Has not my hand made all these things? And so they uh, uh, came into being, declares the Lord. These, no, this isn't a coincidence. This is right after. These are the ones I look on favor, with favor. Those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word. Remember, in James, it says, submit to God. Submit to his word. These are the ones I'm going to, who are going to be my resting place. These are the churches who are going to be my resting place. The ones who are humble and contrite in spirit. Back to Philippians 2 now. Was it not up there? Oh, sorry, there's other verses. Okay, Kim, you're right, I'm wrong. Well, I'm going to look at this. I'm making this point that humility happens in the context of community. This is, this is what we have to do. And these are just a couple of examples. Ephesians 4, 1 to 3. As a prisoner of the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Be completely, it's an imperative, be completely humble and gentle. Those two always go together. Almost always. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. This is all facets of humility. Unity comes through. It's the only way. Because you'll notice unity in the Spirit is over and over again when he talks about humility. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Colossians 3, 12 and 14. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves... With compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If, if any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Humility is critical for a community. And this was Paul's plea over and over and over again to the churches. Be humble. Clothe yourself with humility. Put others before yourself. Treat one, and, uh, one another uh, uh, with love and kindness and gentleness and all these things. Because this is what's necessary 
to have unity in the spirit. If you don't have humility, division is inevitable. It's inevitable. Because pride comes before a fall, and it creates the division. Now, the ultimate scripture of humility that I talked about last time and earlier, I'm going to say again because I haven't emphasized the first point yet. Notice what sets up this classic, classic description of Jesus as a humble man. Talking about humility and community. Philippians 2, 1 through 11. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united in Christ, unity. Notice that's a common denominator. If any comfort from his love, if any common sharing of the Spirit... Right? He says that over and over again. If any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one in mind. It's the same thing in different ways in these verses. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships, talking about community, with one another, have the same mindset as Christ. Bam, the classic verse. Having the very nature of God. Do not consider, did not consider equality with God being something to be used to his own advantage, rather being made, he made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant, being hate, made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the cross. So, taking on the very nature of the servant is what Though, and, and not concerning equality with God, something to be grasped. Don't do things out of selfish ambition. Don't try and grasp title, right? On the contrary, let's try and get other people to get those positions. Valuing others above yourself. And I want to talk about this another time. But developing a prophetic culture where you see the golden people and call it out of them. Encouraging them. That's what... Prophecy is God's love language, encouraging, seeing what, what, how God sees them and telling them. It's really a culture of honor, which I like to call a culture of grace, is really just building each other up by encouragement and prophecy and seeing through God's eyes how, how he sees them, right, rather than how they might be in the moment. But what I have highlighted there is taking on the very nature of servant. That's what Jesus, his... John 13, I'm just going to go there now. This is was Jesus' final illustration to his disciples in the final supper. It's like Jesus' last words. He said a whole bunch of things, but this is something that was so critical to Jesus. Washing their feet. Why was this such a, a remarkable thing and why Peter resisted it? Because in those times and days, there, it wasn't uncommon for people to have servants. And the servant that washed your feet was the base servant. It, he was like the least of the least. Does that make sense? Of the servants. Having that job is like cleaning toilets, maybe, or whatever, right? Not, no offense if you do, but you see what I'm saying. It's just no one wants a job, and if you're in that position, you are a base servant, and Jesus was making this point. When he'd finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you, he asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord, the teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I've done for you. Verily, truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. 
Right? Philippians 2, that's what it was all about. He took on the very nature of a servant. He washed their feet and said, you go and do likewise. Matthew 20, they were saying, this was in the context of them being, Jesus, can I be on your right and left hand? When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Humility. In the verses I talked about in the context of community, serving others, putting others ahead of yourself, calling each other to, to the destiny what God has for them, encouraging them, seeing them with God's eyes, right? Not doing things for your own self out of selfish ambition, but doing it for, for others, submitting to others. It, all these things is what humility in the context of community looks like and what it takes to, for God to say, I want, I'm, you're going to be my resting place. So just to summarize, what does humility look like? Humility is a choice, first thing. We must humble ourselves. I could be wrong, but I don't see any scripture where where it says, ask God to humble you. Maybe in the Old Testament somewhere, but in the New Testament, it's always humble yourself. Clothe yourself with humility and God will exalt you. Humility is a prerequisite for understanding truth, like I said. If you want to stay on the path of life, so to speak, and and you got to stay humble, else you're going to be led astray. If you get into pride. What does humility look like? Jesus. We talked about that. Looks like little children are examples we could, we could look at. Submitting to God, right? Trembling at his word, he says in Isaiah 66. Resisting the devil. As God resists the proud, so should we. We should resist pride. Draw near to God. He'll draw near to you. Talked about intimacy with God. Casting your cares upon God valuing others above yourself, looking to the interest of others rather than self-interest, and taking on the nature of a servant. Whoa. Amen? (laughs) Amen. So why don't we pray, and then we'll do a couple of things. But Lord, I just thank you so much for this amazing congregation, this amazing people, Lord, that... That, that come here and, and week after week, and I just ask, Lord, I know there's the people in this congregation are marked with humility. And Lord, I just ask that you teach us, you continue to teach us what it looks like to serve one another, to be a people who are humble and are able to uh, carry what it is you want to pour out. Lord, we just ask that as we learn what humility looks like and we humble ourselves, we thank you that you promise that you're going to give your grace to us and that we will be your resting place. And God, we just ask and cry out that that would be how you see us as Catch the Fire Ottawa, that we would be humble and contrite and that we would be an example, not only to each other, but to others of what humility can look like as we love and serve one another in unity and humility in Christ. Lord, we know that we need you in order to walk these truths out. And so we just ask for that. And we ask that you show us and you continue to show us what it means, what part we play in terms of how we humble ourselves, God. So, Lord, I just pray a blessing upon each and every one of us um, uh, this week uh, with your peace and tangible presence. May it go with us. And I just ask that you continue to reveal more of your love to us and that we would draw near to you, Father. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.